right, you greedy, greedy-eared capitalist libertarians. Bonus episode, you're getting two this week. Episode 118 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. I was recently on Lions of Liberty Podcast. They chose to have the same word of their name as we have of our name. And I was in a punch-up debate with Michael Munger from Cato and I kicked it. Well, you decide for yourself. I know that a lot of you libertarians have heard me speak about the UBI before, but this one is really special. I think you'll really enjoy it. folks there has been a lot of talk lately about the universal basic income guarantee and i'm guessing this call is going to likely increase as automation and regulations uh, work hand in hand to make it more and more difficult for people to find work to make ends meet and because i've heard arguments both for and against the ubi in libertarian circles i want to present to you all arguments on both sides of that issue that's exactly what we're going to do here today with a little debate i've set up on this very topic now the resolution being debated here will be the universal basic income is an alternative that libertarians should support over the current welfare state, social security system, and minimum wage regulations. My first guest who will be fa- <clears throat> my first guest who will be speaking in favor of the resolution is making his very first appearance on this program. He is a professor of political science at Duke University, as well as an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. He was also a staff economist at the Federal Trade Commission during the Reagan administration. I'm very pleased to welcome for the very first time, Mr. Michael Munger. Michael, are you ready to roar? Roar. All right, sounds like it. (laughs) And uh, my next guest and Michael's debate opponent who will be arguing against this resolution is the co-host of the Scottish Liberty Podcast as well as the host of the Be Yourself and Love It Podcast. He has recently authored the short book, Universal Basic Income for and Against, I'm very pleased to welcome back Anthony Samaroff. Anthony, are you ready to roar? I was actually quite intimidated by Michael's roar, so uh, <laughs> I think I, I think I might just cow- might just cower in the corner instead. Uh, let's hope the debate doesn't off. go that way, though. I was hoping you yeah. wouldn't back down so quick, Anthony. I know you're usually pretty fiery, but much like uh, Tom Petty, <laughs> <laughs> that, that I'm quite fiery. I saw one of his last, yeah, one of his no. last concerts, so that that, that one still hurts. Yeah. Oh, oh, did you? Well, that's quite a blessing. Yeah. Okay, so uh, for all those, yeah, I better, I better make an effort at least. Rawr! There we go. Now that's a roar. Now, uh, now, Michael, since it's your first time on the show, before we even get to your opening statement, I'd love to just have you give our, your, our listeners uh, a very brief recap, uh, sort of the elevator speech version of how you first became interested in libertarian ideas and free markets. How did you land yourself here, uh, where you are today, on this podcast here, in the libertarian sphere overall? Well, I'm really old, so the actual story would take a long time, and nobody wants to hear it. But we'll schedule a nice three or four hour podcast uh, down the road. Yeah. <laughs> well, right, with no listeners. Um, <laughs> I'm. I was uh, when I was a graduate student in economics. I had kind of socialist leanings, but it turns out that studying economics, reading Bastiat and some of the classical liberal economists that I was exposed to, make it pretty hard to trust 
in the state as being the primary locus of the way people are going to organize themselves. In fact, as Tocqueville and others recognized in the 19th century, the state actually stands between the people and their objectives of cooperation. I worked at the U.S. Federal Trade Commission in the first Reagan administration, as you mentioned, and we were Reagan revolutionaries. We were warriors. We were going to change things. But I noticed in the early 80s for the first time, and I've noticed it more and more since, that in the U.S., Republicans say a lot of the right things, but they don't seem to do many of those things. They just say them. So I, was, I limped along as a Republican until 2003, at which time, in March 2003, two things happened. George W. Bush invaded Iraq, and I had dinner with Rick Santorum, the Republican senator from Pennsylvania. And those two events happening in such close proximity persuaded me that I couldn't even pretend any longer to be a Republican. So, what did, was so any Santorum in Paris then? What was that, Anthony? What was it about Rick Santorum in Paris that really burnt your toast? Well, the Rick Santorum, when, when we had dinner, the Republicans controlled the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And Senator Santorum was saying, you know, we need to make government smaller. And this was at the same time we were fighting a completely elective war. And so I asked, well, when? I've been waiting since 1980 for the Republicans actually to act on this impulse that they claim animates them. When are we going to make taxes smaller? When are we going to make spending smaller? And the, the opposite always happened. So I, I just found his unwillingness to accept the, the contradiction between Republican rhetoric and action. It was just too much. Hmm. When I didn't have to confront it so directly, it was okay. But I, I gave up. So um, I began to be active in the big L Libertarian Party in the United States. And um, I ran for governor of the state of North Carolina in 2008 as a libertarian candidate. I was included in four televised debates. I was the keynote speaker at the Libertarian National Convention in Denver, Colorado in 2008, and then again in 2010 in St. Louis. So um, the connection between big L and small L libertarian activism is something that I, I think is really interesting. Um, the, the, I was the state campaign chair for Gary Johnson in North Carolina in 2016, and I think both sort of libertarian debates about philosophy and policy are interesting, but ideas about how to get citizens, actual citizens, more interested in at least a libertarian direction is something that I'm excited about. All right. We're, we're excited to do that a little bit today. And uh, Anthony, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't offer you the same opportunity. I know you've been on the show once before. So listeners can, of course, go back and hear your full story of how you became a libertarian by clicking back in their feed. I believe that it's episode 345. Uh, and I know you were a staunch progressive uh, like a decade or so ago. So why don't you just give a, again, a very Cliff Notes version of how you went from a progressive who would support something uh, overtly like the, the uh, universal ba basic income without even giving it a second thought probably back then. Uh, how did you kind of get to where you are today uh compulsion for rational consistency and to pick apart everything that i believe to be true to me i think that i'm just really scared of believing the wrong thing and that led me down the youtube rabbit hole of political you know around the time where around 2007 where Ron Paul just burst out in the scene and youtube became a thing there was lots of content creators making youtubes about political philosophy, libertarianism, and so forth. And um, 
I was driven to keep on investigating this phenomenon and see, to see, and little by little, I chipped away at my progressivism and became some species of ANCAP or voluntarist. Although, uh, philosophically, I'd say that um, pragmatically, I'm a gradual reductionist. And like Michael, I'm interested in finding out how we can get people at least some of the way. In fact, one of the reasons why I wrote the UBI book was to introduce, hopefully, predominantly leftists who might be interested in the UBI to libertarian approaches to tackling poverty. And I give over about a third of the book to exploring those alternatives. All right. Well, let's explore a little bit more. Let's get right into it. Uh, I'm going to, again, reiterate this resolution, and then I'll allow you guys to make an opening statement. So, again, the resolution being debated is the universal basic income, in <clears throat> excuse me, the universal basic income is an alternative that libertarians should support over the current welfare state, social security system, and minimum wage regulations. Uh, there's some very important details there. So, uh, Michael, you are speaking in favor. I will let you give the opening statement. Thanks very much. First, let me say that I applaud and congratulate Anthony for having written this book in such a careful way. And the way that this uh, proposition is stated, it's interesting that it is such a marginal and direct comparison with the existing uh, system. So often a big debate between uh, the people who support UBI is, would universal basic income be in addition to or instead. And so we're talking about, would it be a better alternative if it were instead? I think most libertarians would say it's probably a bad idea if it was stacked on top of mm -hmm. everything else that we already have. So that's something that's not on the table here. Right. <coughs> the other thing that's interesting is I've written a few times about a comparison. I noticed when I was running for office, and when I was talking about actual policies where I had a, a policy platform, if I talked about education, I said that I thought a voucher program would increase the level of liberty for many people, increase their personal responsibility compared to a monopoly state educational system. But many of my libertarian colleagues would say, no, no, that's unacceptable. The state would be involved. Well, okay, but the state already is involved. And so the interesting thing about this proposition is that it concedes state involvement and asks from there, is it a marginal improvement to have a universal basic income compared to the existing system? Now, for my side of the proposition to win, I would have to show two things. First, I would have to demonstrate that a UBI would be better than what we have now. Second, I would have to make a persuasive argument that there's no alternative to UBI that would also be better than what we have now, and that would be better than UBI. So the interesting thing about Anthony's book is that he addresses the problems on both of those levels, and is quite fair to the arguments for UBI compared to the current system, but then proposes some alternatives that he says would be even better than UBI. So the, the basis of the claim that I would want to make is, Libertarians who are directionalists, that is, someone who wants to say, I want to improve the quality of personal responsibility and less state coercion compared to the current system, they're willing to be marginal and incremental, might favor a UBI. Someone who's a destinationist, a destinationist is someone who has in mind a particular set of ideal propositions about the role of the state in people's lives. I think that destinationists are probably going to reject a UBI. 
I think that directionalists might be willing to consider it if it's actually better than the current system. The arguments that I would make in favor of it being the directional arguments then, that I would make in favor of the current system would be, first, it would be no more expensive than what we're doing already when you add up all of the programs that we have for anti-poverty, at least in the United States, particularly if you include the insidious effects of things like minimum wage. If you look at the intergenerational transfers that we're getting from financing Social Security the way that we're doing it. So if we take away all the anti-poverty programs, if we take away Social Security, and we get rid of minimum wage laws, a lot of the apparent expense of UBI is offset by the savings that we get from uh, getting rid of those programs. Second, the concerns about technological unemployment, and as Anthony says quite rightly in his book, just the, the notion of stress. It's not so much that people are actually in trouble, but the uncertainty that people face. What's going to happen to me if I'm unable to work, if I lose my job? So the idea that there is some alternative that they would immediately qualify for, in fact, that they're constantly receiving, puts a floor underneath the worst thing that can happen. Third, and this may just be more focused on the United States, but that's where I'm mostly participating in the debate. As it stands, the problem with the, the benefits cliff or the, the, the loss of benefits if you do any of the things that we think of as getting us on the stairway to the American dream, what happens now is if I'm a single mother with three children and I'm living in subsidized Section 8 housing, and I'm getting ten dollars to $12,000 per year in public benefits. If I get a job where I earn ten dollars or $12,000, $14,000 a year, a minimum wage sort of job, I immediately lose all those benefits, which means that poor people are not lazy, they're rational. The tax rate on the very poor exceeds 100%. Well, it's unsurprising that we have such a large and self-perpetuating poor class in the United States. Worsening that is the fact that we live in a federal system. So many places in the United States, there are jobs. Many other places, there are many people without jobs. So suppose that that single mother of three on Section 8 housing lives in New Jersey, near New York City. That means that if she says, I'm going to try to move to North Carolina or Texas or someplace where there are jobs, she immediately loses those benefits. And she, when she arrives in the place where there might be jobs, there's no means of her to connect to that system until she's lived there for at least a year. So the current system not only uses marginal tax rates that locks people into dead-end lives, it also locks them in locations that prevents the kind of labor mobility that might make the economic system more dynamic. So those are the three arguments that I think favor the proposition. All right, and uh, Anthony, I will now give you the chance to give your opening statement speaking against the resolution. Again, you're speaking against the idea that the universal basic income is an alternative that libertarians should be supporting over the current welfare state, social security system, and minimum wage regulations. Anthony, the floor is yours. Minimum wage. I, I particularly enjoyed the implementation of minimum wage. I definitely approach all of my podcasts with a certain minimum level of rage. I just like to... Um, 
<laughs> I'd just like to, first of all, I'd just like to thank um, Michael for joining us today. First, uh, first of all, for reading my short book and two, for arguably taking the position which I'm guessing most of your audience are going to be um, hostile to. So I, I appreciate that and um, his clarity of thinking. hostile. My audience is very nice, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, get, you get what I mean. Now, I've got some arguments of my own. I don't know if we're going to go back and forth and maybe I'll tr I would like to address Michael's arguments later in the debate. But, um, you know, for, let, let me see if I can make my opening statement. I guess I've got five main arguments for why libertarians shouldn't be supporting this. They're not the arguments, you know, that we might bring to um, leftists just putting aside the obvious arguments about the disincentive to work and the incentive to work, you know, they, those are basic arguments, but specifically for libertarians. And I would also add that I'm not against marginal improvements, things like school vouchers and things like that. I am a gradual reductionist, but I don't think that the, even so, even given the premises which we've presented, I don't think this is something that we should be advocating for. And I'll give the reasons for that. The first is it won't make the statists or the leftists go away because it's going to fail to actually address the underlying causes of poverty and, equality and inequality, which is that the people on the bottom of the economic ladder don't have skills, uh, economic skills, so they can't um, command a higher wage and they don't have any capital, so they don't get a... Um, dividends. They don't get a passive income. They're going to get their UBI, go out to the shops, spend it. It's going to go straight back to the rich people. And it's going to be at the opportunity cost of the investment that the people who have been taxed to, uh, to pay for the universal basic income, then putting it in the stock market, investing it in capital goods, which produce more goods, which bring the price of all the costs and services down, making life more affordable and helping the poor. Second argument, Arguing for the universal basic income, I hope that was clear by the way, my last strand, um, is at the opportunity cost for us of promoting libertarian policies for poverty reduction, such as those that I go to in length in my book, Universal Basic Income For and Against. And I go through five at least approaches to tackling poverty from a libertarian perspective. And thirdly, right, at least, and I think this is a, I'm, I'm getting more serious with each of these objections, so I'm building up to the good ones, Michael, okay? <laughs> right, thank you. Right, at least the present system is discriminatory. Now, we hear enough from left-wing critics of the UBI that you're just going to be paying a UBI to rich people, and that is true. But more importantly, right, the system needs to look people at the eye, in the eye at least to an extent. And if you're giving out a universal basic income to people who've got substance addictions or they can't get out of the house for being on their computer um, or, um, you know, gambling addiction with no discrimination whatsoever, you're going to make their life worse, not better. You're going to make their death worse, not better. So this lack of discrimination is going to cause unintended consequences. Fourth of all, uh, sociological problems, I should say. Um, the UBI, I believe, even if you manage to, to strip the 
the current welfare system away and the minimum wage and even labor laws which um, stop people from gaining employment, it's, I believe it will grow arms and legs. It's going to start with someone saying, I'm a single mother, I should get a higher UBI, or oh, I'm disabled, or oh, I live in an area with higher rents, right? And for most people, this will seem plausible. They'll say, well, I mean, that's true. Why shouldn't a single mother get a higher uh, um, UBI? And indeed, why should they? Well, the problem is we'll end up in the same a bureaucratic mess, you'll need police to see who's abusing the system, who's not really a single mother, who's not really in this kind of housing, or, you know, and you're back to the mess that we started with where, where the system's very complicated. Fifth and finally, this is my major problem with this from a libertarian standpoint, my major problem. In the current system, we can at least behave as though the state is just an aberration that intervenes with our life sometimes we need to pay our taxes but for most of our life we can just go about as though the state doesn't exist or we can limit our involvement with it the ubi brings everyone into the system we are now all paid off vassals of the state the best way to get voted into office will be to promise an increase in the ubi um, but 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 also there, there's other dimensions to that um, it can be taken away at any time. So when the government says, you know, Michael Munger, well, he's writing these um, academic studies undermining the, um, the state's role in labor markets, that's subversive, right? We're going to cut his UBI. This is the makings of some kind of dystopian science fiction where so many people are dependent on the state for income and at any time the state can cut them off. So my main, my Fifth, my most libertarian objection is it brings everyone into a relationship with the state uh, that underlies their very livelihood and also gives them a stake, makes them stakeholders, the same way that public servants are stakeholders in the state. Um, people on welfare, they're stakeholders. Politicians, they're stakeholders. It makes everyone a stakeholder. So those are my five arguments. And thank you very much um, for allowing me my introduction. All right. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you for the, the minimum rage. I think you had minimum rage there with that one. Thank you. Um, so there's a couple of directions we could go here now. I, I think I'd like to just start off. I, Anthony, I know you wanted to respond to a few things in mm -hmm. Michael's introduction, and we'll, yes, we'll do that in a second. Uh, Michael, I'm curious, would you like to respond to maybe just Anthony's number five there, the, the, his big objection of bringing everyone, basically everyone who's not involved in the welfare state right now, and kind of bringing them under that umbrella and essentially making everyone, as Anthony stated, vassals of the state. Do you have a response to that? what seems to be his biggest objection? Well, um, it may just be that I'm more pessimistic than Antony about what's possible. So I have a, a lead article in a, a journal called The Independent Review that's coming out next month. Uh, and my article, there's six people that respond to it. My article is called The Road to Crony Capitalism. And in it, I'm making an argument that's analogous to the famous one made by F.A. Hayek in 1944, The Road to Serfdom, which is once you start having a, a, a state that's able to control price, you get more and more regulations piled on top of it and you move towards a totalitarian system. My claim is that in a capitalist system, in a democracy, where economists call what is what, what economists call rent-seeking, is promoted by politicians, then we're always put in, comp in competition against each other 
for the boodle, for the contracts from the state, for benefits from the state. My worry is that what we call capitalism tends to become crony capitalism because we're encouraging this rent-seeking contest. So what I see, I don't, I don't disagree at all with him about his fifth objection. I think it's actually the, the crux of the matter. I think UBI is the best way that we have left to address that. And the reason is precisely they could not say, Michael Munger, you have published things that we don't like because it's universal. The, the fact that it's universal, that everybody without exception gets it, means that it's much harder for the state to set up rent-seeking contests where we compete with each other for a few of the crumbs from the public trough. So the, I, I think that the, the, the reason to argue for universal basic income, rather than politically derived programs that are based on the amount of time you either spend uh, lobbying government or the amount of campaign contributions you give to people in government as a way of securing your benefits, I think universal basic income is actually the answer to his very valid fifth objection. But that's because I think that the alternatives, some of which he suggests in his books, in his book, are not themselves viable. I think we're tending towards, in the U.S., I think the U.S. is heading towards being Argentina, where the, the system is largely based on awarding your political friends and harming your political enemies. And yeah, I'll let you respond. I did just want to kind of follow up on one thing you said there about it, it being universal so it would go to everybody without discrimination. I'm just kind of curious how you envision this playing out in, in the sense of if it's for everybody, does anyone get excluded in terms of, let's say, you know, someone becomes a felon. Do you think felons become excluded in a system like this? If someone is spending life in jail and, and if that's the case, then at what point does the, do the levels of exclusion you know, expand so much that we are actually seeing a sort of discriminatory system again? And Antony is right to worry about that because the way that things work in totalitarian governments is they don't announce you've written something we disagree with. They have some trumped up charge that says, well, you didn't pay your taxes or they pay some woman or some man to say this, this person paid to have relations with me in a hotel room. So they, it, it, it's blackmail that they then get you to plead guilty to some felony and then you're taken off the benefits list. So the only way to protect against that would be universal basic income. And he raised another point that I don't want to spend too much time on, but he's absolutely right. What about the mother with children getting extra benefits? So I think there's two groups we have to worry about, and I don't know the answer. One is children. We don't want to give people an artificial incentive to have children so that the more children they have, the more benefits they have. The other is felons who are actually in jail. If you're in jail, then you don't get a universal basic income. But if, you've just, if charges have been brought against you or you've been released and you're back in society, then yes, you are. I understand that that's wasteful, but that's the only way to work around. That's the best of the bad workarounds for Anthony's very valid objection that the state would just use some trumped up charges to deny you the benefit. Anthony, can to respond right. to that? Well, I'm just saying that I don't really understand how this stops that. I've got the same concerns about um, you know, the government being in bed with big business that Mike does, but I don't understand how giving everyone a UBI stops the government being in bed with big business. I would just add that um, this, uh, the, my point really was that it starts off as universal basic income. It starts off as universal. And as time goes on, people become like um, 
you know, they've been put out to graze. Uh, they lose their ability, they lose their claws, they lose their economic skills and their ability to provide for themselves because they're so used to being provided for by the government. And then they become more docile. And it's at that point, who knows, 10 to 30, 100 years down the line, if it, get, if it goes that far, that is if the universal basic income doesn't just cause superinflation and people just decide to... Um, trade with bitcoin or something instead and the whole scheme collapses if it does continue there comes a point where people see the government as their their mother and father that their source of food and then it's at that point that the government can very easily turn totalitarian because everyone not just people at the bottom the government already uses people at the bottom to justify all of its policies uh, people think that capitalism needs an underclass. It's not true. It's the state that needs an underclass. The poor don't need the government. The government needs the poor because all of their programs are justified based on the existence of the poor. This will exacerbate that situation in my uh, humble opinion. There might be some objections or questions over whether my opinion is really humble, but I, present, I, I at least am willing to present it as such. All right. Uh, anything to add there, Michael? There's an empirical disagreement that we have, and the thing about empirical disagreements is that they might be subject to actual adjudication with evidence. So the empirical sure. disagreement that we have is whether the net effects of universal basic income would cause people to work less or more. Economists divide this into two effects, a price effect and an income effect. The price effect means that at the margin, the implicit and explicit taxes of poor people getting jobs and trying to work their way out of poverty would be reduced. That cuts in my direction. The income effect means that even if you don't work, you would still have a source of income. That income effect means that some people would say, you know, I don't want to work at the Circle K or the convenience store. I'm just going to live in my mom's basement and play RuneScape. And mm -hmm. there would be people that would do that. The question is, which of those two effects is greatest? Here's the, and I'm making a value judgment that just may be false. Value judgment that I'm making is that many poor people, if they just had a chance, if they had some way to work on their ambitions that now can only be served by working in the, let's call it gray sector, maybe selling drugs, prostitution, things that they, they, can, they can use to avoid taxes and keep their benefits because they're contingent. A lot of those people that are poor are actually ambitious and hardworking. If they had a chance to get some kind of education and start their own business, they would. They want to get more than a thousand dollars a month. They are having a thousand dollars a month guaranteed is just the beginning. On the other hand, there's no question there are many people who are economically marginal. If they, who if they got a thousand dollars a month universal basic income, would drop out of the workforce completely. Now, here's the value judgment that I'm making that may be offensive. The ambitious people that are being denied an opportunity now would be empowered by a UBI. The not ambitious people that are only working so that they can support their RuneScape habit, they would be harmed by UBI in precisely the sense that Anthony mentions, because we would be enabling their indolence, their laziness. Now, I'm willing to accept that trade-off. Empowering the ambitious, the ambition, ambitious people that are now thwarted by the system is worth accepting the fact that many economically marginal people would drop out altogether. 
So yeah, it sounds like that's one of the the main points yeah. of disagreement between you two is that you simply see that effect as more empowering to a greater amount of people, and Anthony, you may see that effect as as maybe just empowering. Well, I think I think I think we agree that there are the two effects. We may right. disagree mm -hmm. about their relative mm -hmm. magnitudes. Exactly right. Yes. You want to add on that, Anthony. Well, yeah. I mean, Mike um, presents a compelling vision of a future where if you've got um, a, a project, then you can go out and do it because the state's going to uh, provide a floor for you. And it is compelling. And um, I just, I, um, yeah, basically, I just think that with the knowledge that that cash is always going to, maybe if, it, if you gave someone that for a year so they could follow their, their project, then great, you know. But, you know, with, with that being every week, oh, I can party this week. Oh, I'm kind of hungover this week. I just want to Netflix. Do you know what? I'm going to have my universal basic income forever. I will get around to that project at some point. Meanwhile, what Mike is not accounting for is the opportunity cost of the money from people that that was taxed from being spent on, um, on the things that they would spend it on, which are actually... Um, enabling people's vision. So I think the, the best way to do it would be to um, stage the interventions that I talk about in my book that would lead to everyone being richer and it would make it easier to take time off work and things like that because the cost of living would be so low. Um, I, I want to kind of um, come back to some of the things that Mike said earlier. Yeah, um, and this is the idea of yeah, it's the, the, the idea of this uh, presenting a floor for people um, or ra was w one of his arguments, I think, sorry, I've lost track a little bit. Yeah, the welfare cliffs. Um, I have seen in my book, the welfare cliffs, or uh, the poverty trap, as we call it in the UK, which is if people earn more, they actually walk away with less because they get their benefits cut. That is the most compelling argument for the UBI, but the UBI is not the only way to get rid of welfare cliffs. The other way would just simply to make it that instead of getting benefits taken away from you, whenever you earn, say, a dollar, um, you get fit, you lose 50 cents of your benefits, and that would create a graduated system without the risk of making everyone a vassal of the system, as I suggested before. You mentioned the federated system in the US that people lose their benefits, right? Okay, I appreciate that. That's not, an, that's not a pressure we're under here in the UK. Um, so it's not an argument I've, been, I've considered before. Um, I want to go to a question, which is, you said that um, the removing the current welfare system would offset the cost of the UBI, um, but you included removing the minimum wage as well. I'm not really on, we can come back to how much you envisage a UBI being, but first, I'm not really understanding how abolishing the minimum wage is going to offset the cost of providing a UBI. Well, actually, the minimum wage argument is along the lines of the things that are unseen. Minimum wage, as I see it in the United States, maybe it affects employment a bit, but what it probably means is that many people are unable to take jobs where they could get the experience they would need to have a better job. Okay, and so that's a good argument. What we don't see is 
10 years from now the job that I would have if I were not now prevented by the minimum wage. And that's a, I mean, that's, in a way, that's sort of an argument on faith that I'm making. It's a Bastiat sort of argument. It's hard to know what the aggregate consequences right. of those are. So when you think about it, right now, many people in the U.S. want a $15 per hour minimum wage, which is pretty substantial. And their sure. argument is it should be a living wage. Well, at Duke, where I teach, people pay $60,000 a year to work really hard. Mm. But they're paying us for education. In Europe, it's fairly common to have internship programs or apprenticeship programs where you're paid a wage that's far less than, than the going wage would be as a way of becoming educated. Our minimum wage laws are preventing that for a lot of the people in the underclass. And then you're 25 years old, you go to apply for a job, they say, what experience do you have? And you say none, and they say next. Yes, and uh, I appreciate that. So to summarize, um, people, one of, the minimum wage stops people getting on the job ladder. Now you may say someone earning five bucks an hour, less than the minimum wage, will not be paying much taxes, but, in five years, they might be paying more taxes because they got on the job experience. And I, I have, to, I would mention, Mike, that the point you're making about how the minimum wage and labor laws harm the poor is one that I'm never done making on my podcast and in my publications. I think it's a very, very serious point. And I wish the left understood the degree to which policies they advocate actually harm rather than help the poor. You said that the minimum, that that abolishing the current welfare system would more than offset the cost of, or at least offset the cost of implementing a UBI, which leads me to ask you, how much do you envisage the UBI being? Because from all I've seen, it would be a lot more expensive than the current welfare system. Yeah, Michael, maybe you could detail some of the, like, the specifics of the numbers to actually show how, you know, how that plays out in your interview. Well, it, it's hard to do without a whiteboard. But I'm, I'm, and you know, an economist is. My hands are shaking. I have very smart listeners. They can envision the whiteboard. Yeah, I, I, they they can picture it pretty well. It's been estimated, depending on what you count, that right now we're spending between eighteen and twenty thousand dollars per poor person in the United States on poverty reduction programs, and the poverty line for a family of three is something like thirty thousand. So if you've got two or three people, each of whom we're spending $18,000 on, that's at least $40,000. There should be no poor people in the United States. If you take the total amount that we're spending and you divide by the number of poor people, there should be no poor people. And yet there are. Why? Well, part of the reason is the leaky bucket problem, that not all of the money actually gets to where it's going. But part of it is that we pay bureaucrats a great deal to pester and torment poor people to make sure that they go through licensing requirements or that we send a bureaucrat to make sure there's no man living under the bed. I've written some things where I said the state is a really bad polygamist. That is, the state loves these poor women as long as they promise not to have a job or a husband, that is, do the things that you would want to do to get out of poverty. So we have a lot of administrative costs. The advantage of the UBI is we would just give people the money. Now, that's only for the poor people, and that's even in a fairly – the U.S. doesn't have that many poor people, and I've made an argument for why we want to give it to everyone. Giving it to everyone else, we'd have to adjust the tax rate to make it revenue neutral. And the disadvantage of that is that it would slightly increase the tax rate for someone like me. So I get $1,000 a month from a UBI. It would be implemented in the form that 
Charles Murray or Milton Friedman advocated, which is a negative income tax. So on my standard deduction right now on my income tax, my standard deduction is $7,000. If we move it instead to $19,000, that is $1,000 a month, but we increase my tax rate slightly so that it's revenue neutral, there's no net effect on me. So for most people, there's no cost implications at all of having a UBI because we give a larger standard deduction, but we increase the tax rate slightly to make it revenue neutral. So the reason I'm claiming that it's not that expensive is we already spend enough to eradicate poverty, just give it to people. And for everyone else, the net effects wouldn't be very much. What I like, I have to admit, about this just give it to people is that it smokes out the paternalism of many people on the left and on the right. Because they'll say, well, you're just going to give them the money? You know how they are. <laughs> well, no, do tell. How are they? Well, the, the, the problem is that there's this sense that the poor are incapable of running their own lives, and they need smart white people to order them around. And I, I don't think that's true. I think many people are capable of ordering their own lives if they have the resources to do it. I do appreciate the, the baiting aspect of that, for, <laughs> for sure. Uh, anytime you can smoke people out about their, their deep internal dirty views. Well, I've, I've been told I'm a master baiter. <laughs> as, well we as, a, as, well as, as well as a cunning linguist. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Thank you. All right, you win. <laughs> and you thought it was just an innocent debate on UBI. <laughs> uh, um, okay. I'll let you respond to that if you want, and then I have a couple little mini directions I'd like to take things in. No, only to say that that um, sounds like at this, the figure of $12,000 a year per person, that looks to me like it costs almost $4 trillion to give one to everyone in um, the U.S., which is vastly more than the U.S. currently spends on welfare programs. So I just don't know where the money's going to come from. Um, that's all. Do you just want to clarify that, Michael? Uh, for most people, there's no net spending at all. So it, it, it is $4 trillion, but it's, I give it to you and I take it back. Um, I'm, not, uh, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that those figures are sound. Sure. Um, I, I would uh, lead someone to read, let me see, sorry. And, and of course, Mike, I mean, you can, you can if you get back to me, about it by email, uh, David R. Henderson's essay, A Philosophical Economist Case Against the Government Guaranteed Basic Income. He goes into the figures according to what uh, Matt Zwolinski proposed, and I think his proposal was only $10,000 a year, and it looked way, way, way um, completely unaffordable. So, right, it's, interesting. Uh, it's interesting that Professor Henderson did that. I edited the volume of that journal that was in independent review. Zwolinski and okay. I both presented a set of figures, and David Henderson, I hope you're listening, you're a darn coward because you did not address my figures, you only looked at Zwolinski's. So Henderson and I are having a debate, and he bailed out. He did oh, not address my figures where I showed it was possible. So you're absolutely right. You should look at the journal that I edited and see <laughs> if you find my figures plausible because Professor Henderson was so afraid of me that he took on Zwolinski instead. And you're such an unintimidating, unassuming, uh, warm character, Michael. Well, well I don't David, know. David's a very good friend of mine, so I'm, I'm just having a little fun with him. 
Well, okay. I'll certainly link to uh, in the show notes for the show. I'll link to any of these articles and journals that, that you guys are referencing if you want to, you know, kind of shoot me this stuff afterwards too. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to see. I've, I think that the most compelling argument that um, Michael's presented is, you know, that it creates this sort of floor for people, you know, and people don't need to worry. And, uh, but we're, um, you know, I, I, I that about things because they can fall back into the relaxation of their, the, the guarantee, their guaranteed basic income. My view is personally that it's going to be less prosperity over time. And I, I guess I, I detail why I think that is in the book, so I don't have to go over that again. It might be a value judgment. Um, what I'd really like to say is, um, if either of you have any questions for me, because I asked, I asked a few questions, even, you know. Yeah, well, I'll, uh, I'll let Michael ask you a question maybe at the end. I do want to dig into one topic, uh, kind of veer off for a second. It's not really veering off. It's really veering in a little more. But uh, I do want to address the, the subject of automation kind of differently with both of you, um, <laughs> because that, that is, I think, the crux of this issue and a lot of the reasons that it's coming up more so, I think, nowadays, as automation in real time, we see it replacing uh, human beings in many, many sectors. And I think it's going to be happening much more rapidly over the next 10, 15, 20 years. And I think that will often be tied to this call for a UBI. So, uh, Michael, would you first like to address um, from, from that from the perspective of promoting a UBI, why you think automation and the trend toward, towards automation will necessitate you know, something in the, uh, in the manner of a UBI like you're presenting uh, as opposed to the current welfare state dealing with that as it is? Well, I thought that was such an important question that this year, past year in March, I published a book with Cambridge University Press called Tomorrow 3.0. And my argument there is that the combination of transactions cost reduction, the sale of reduction in transactions cost by phone apps, and commoditizing the excess capacity that we have in many of the things around us are likely dramatically to reduce the costs of sharing. Now, the advantage of that is that we'll reduce prices, but it's also likely to increase technological unemployment. And so in that book, and it, it's an academic book, it's a Cambridge University Press book, but I, I tried to make the argument in fairly everyday terms, the conclusion that I came to is that jobs as we know them are simply going to disappear, particularly in the United States where they come with benefits. Because in the U.S., most of our retirement benefits and our health benefits depend on our having a job. To the extent that we're going to need far less stuff and the stuff that we have will be made much more durable so that it's more suitable for sharing, means that people are not, we're not going to have traditional manufacturing jobs. And in fact, Mark Andreessen, the venture capitalists, famously made an observation that software eats the world. And the, what you need to recognize about that is that software is to service jobs as robots and automation are to production jobs. So if Seattle recently raised their minimum wage to $15 per hour, if you go into a Starbucks or a McDonald's in Seattle, you will see exactly zero employees. What you'll see instead is a kiosk. So it used to be that you'd go in, you'd look at the board, you say some words from the board, the person behind the counter would press the corresponding words on their cash register. Just turn the cash register around. You can get rid of all those jobs. So we're losing so many service jobs so fast. So I think we need to get out in front of this and prevent our cities from being on fire. When you look at the reasons why the welfare state was created in Germany, 
it wasn't out of any love for the poor. Bismarck, the, the architect of the welfare state, was worried about labor unrest in the 40s and 50s, of the 1840s and 1850s, expanding. And so people said, yes, we need to provide some sort of floor. I think we're now going to be in something like the same position because of the threat of technological unemployment, the onset of the gig economy, and the disappearance of traditional 40-hour-a-week jobs. And uh, Anthony, you can respond to that, but I was going to kind of phrase that question to you a little bit differently. I know your perspective will be different on this. So, I mean, mm. for you, why do you think that automation will lessen the need and the, and the call for UBI and, the, and the, the necessity to have that, that basic income floor for people? Yeah, because basically the onset of automation will make goods and services so abundant that they'll be eminently affordable. I mean, I can go into a charity shop around the corner and pick up a pile of VHS videos for nothing. They want to get rid of them if I want to watch old movies because they can't do anything with this stuff. Now, our laptops, which are so advanced today, 20 years from now will be like um, perceived like the, you know, the Nokia phone or, or something even less advanced than that. So, this idea that ought, I don't think that Michael, well, is fully taking into account the way that the market redistributes the benefits of automation to any, everyone, or at least um, one by bringing the price of goods and services down, and in the way that it has in the past, which is the reason why we earn more money now is because our automation allows one person to do the work, you know, um, how, may, how, how many men is needed to do the work of a forklift, right? So a forklift driver makes more money and his money can spread further because of automation. Um, now, the, my, my second leg of my answer is, so I think what will happen, what will likely happen is people need to work less and less hours. It's pretty hard to envisage at the moment the end of jobs at the same time that we're told classroom sizes are bigger than ever. We're told that um, the, 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 the hospital, wait, hospital waiting lists are so long. We're told that old people are dying in their homes lonely. Uh, you know, you can't get enough childcare. There is tons of work that needs to be done that takes a human touch. There's lonely people out there. I would love to have a butler or I'd love to have a cook to prepare all my meals or I'd love if I had a garden someone to come over and mow my lawn for me but my on my income I can't afford these things with the onset of automation um, taking away all these manufacturing jobs and these service jobs, the price of everything I get at a, at, a, at a cafe where I can just put my order in goes down. The price of everything giving me more money left over to pay someone to babysit my uh, grandma, you know, or whatever it is, you know. To, um, so I think that. Um, we're, until you can create an AI android who's just as pleasant to be around as uh, Michael or Mark, uh, then I don't, I don't think that we're going to see the disappearance of jobs. I just think that kids are going to get tutors. I think that people are going to be much more in mentorship roles, teaching each other skills rather than these kind of impersonal factory jobs and, and what have you, because we're told that there's a shortage of people in those professions.
You don't think there'd be demand for the Anthony Samaroff uh, Android as well? Why, why, why only, only, only as a luxury sex toy for women. <laughs> Who you can also debate uh, libertarian politics with at the same time. They'll it's return it to the bloody shop if, I, if, it, if it's programmed <laughs> to do that. <laughs> Michael, any thoughts there on, on Anthony's idea that just that this, the lowering of costs of everything will just make people so much relatively wealthier that there will be you know, demand for just jobs, just a different kind of jobs, more jobs that would require that sort of a, that human touch, I guess. You Yoga know. teacher. <laughs> yeah. The idea of a job has only existed for about 200 years. The idea of working together in communities to solve collective problems has existed forever. So I don't disagree at all with his description. What I think we need to do is make sure we get rid of minimum wage laws with, on restrictions on labor that would allow exactly the flourishing that he's talking about. And I worry that in the United States, we're trying to, we're, we're reducing the rapidity with which these inevitable changes are happening. So this is actually my secret weapon. Basic income would cost almost nothing if prices fall as much as Anthony and I both think that they're likely to fall because the amount that you would need to spend, Facebook is free, Twitter is free. There's so many things that I can get very cheaply. In my book, I talk about tool libraries, about people that share, instead of having to pay to store tools, Instead of having to have a garage, we can share an autonomous automobile. If prices fall enough, the amount that of a basic income that would be required would be relatively small. So I, again, we agree. What we're disagreeing about is the empirical implications of it. I think that having a basic income will partly solve the political stress problem, but it'll also not be that expensive as prices fall. The problem is that it doesn't matter how cheap stuff is if you don't have a job. And if I only pay a little tiny bit for a butler, then before very long, it's quite likely that I will have an AI robot butler, which means that that job will be gone also. I do, I am more optimistic than I have argued. I actually think that there may be a flowering of new kinds of creativity where people are able to come up with stuff that I can't imagine for jobs and activities and ways of serving each other. So I'm, I'm hoping that the, this idea of basic income is going to be something like Anthony said, we're going to laugh at laptops as if they were brick phones. Uh, I own four laptops. Why? The only reason that I own all these laptop computers is that it's hard for me to rent them. I, I, I make it a practice of I almost never buy a car. When I'm traveling, I almost never buy a car. Instead, I rent one. Well, suppose at the airport on my way to the rental car booth, I could go buy the Laptopia machine. And at the Laptopia machine, I run my credit card and out comes a keyboard or maybe just a screen that I can talk into. All of my files live on, in the cloud. The idea of a laptop already is almost obsolete. So we should be able to share these things. We shouldn't have to own anything. If that's true, the price is likely to fall. And if that's true, UBI won't be very expensive. I think, um, yeah, I think most people like private property more than you predict. Um, I think uh, in the interests of equality, I only have two laptops. So <laughs> I think that one of oh, your... I'm part of the oppressor class. Should, yeah, one I of your four laptops should be uh, redistributed to me. But... Um, 
Uh, now that I've found out that Mike only has one laptop, and if we average out the number of laptops we own, um, that nothing will go to me. I'm now, no, yeah, I'm no longer, uh, I'm no longer a socialist when it comes to laptops. <laughs> um, I can see the debate. Michael's more clever than me. He wins. Well, that no, was the, that um, was the premise. Who's more clever? Yeah. Uh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, I. I, I no, just kidding. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, people, the, this idea of tool sharing and things like that is a great thing. I think it will become, it come more often. If I'm to, in the interests of making it a debate, <clears throat> I should argue why I guess I think that UBI is an impediment to the future that Michael says that we want rather than something that will help. And that comes back to what I said uh, earlier on. I kind of scooted the point by saying, I argued, for, I argued, I laid down the reasons why I think this will make us less prosperous in the book. Um, so, but, but I didn't explain that. So it's basically, if you're redistributing from people who are working to people who are not working, that means less money in the high end, um, less money going into capital investments, which means that, um, less stuff will be produced quicker because uh, and, and by the laws of supply and demand the more stuff that's produced the better uh, because the more stuff that gets produced the more abundant that stuff is the cheaper it is to buy at the same time you're not paying people a lot of people are being paid by the universal basic income to write poetry or to that tap dance at their local cafe or to whatever they are or to make origami ponies which by the way very worthy i think the world would be a much better place if there were more origami ponies i don't dispute that i think we can however they're yeah, they're not being paid by the universal basic income to do work that other people want them to do. Therefore, there'll be a drop-off in the production of new goods, uh, again, slowing down the progress of us living in a hyperabundant um, society. So for reasons like that, I just think that this universal basic income is going to retard prosperity rather than advance it along um, yeah and I also I think that people might be more wasteful of funds that they didn't have to earn um, for, for reasons we've explored maybe because uh, I'd rather just sit in, uh, at home and Netflix uh, watch Netflix this week uh, Michael I'll let you respond to that further if you like but I'll also give you the opportunity here since Anthony was able to uh, ask you a question earlier is there anything that you want to ask uh, Anthony you know further about his his view on UBI here and, and not not necessarily just on the automation aspect well I, I actually would like to make a claim um, and we've been sort of we tried to be careful and have this as a debate yeah. where we're presenting alternative points of view he raised a point earlier that I think he's just dead right about and that I want to concede is a weakness with my position. So Alexis de Tocqueville in 1831 wrote a book called Democracy in America, and he said the voluntary private associations he saw in the United States were much better than what he saw as the democracy in France. Because the problem in France was that the idea that the state, it's the state's job to solve problems enfeebles the sort of ambition yes. that we have as individuals. And so it, if, if, I, if I see a school that's falling down, I say, well, darn it, the state should do something. That was the French approach. 
Whereas what Tocqueville saw in the U.S. was people said, the school's falling down, let's do something. So they form a group, they form an association, and they work together. And so the very important claim that he makes is that an unintended consequence, and it might take a generation or two to work out, might not this sort of dependence infantilize and enfeeble the impulses we have to act on our own because we can depend on the state to take care of us. And I think that's something that we need to be concerned about, the idea that we want to make the delivery of state benefits more efficient, which is at the heart of my claim, might be exactly what we don't want to do. The last thing we want to do is to make this comfortable. If that's true, then the sort of disruption, the difficulties that we expect in trying to anticipate and deal with the creative destruction of the new economy may be an opportunity rather than a threat. Whereas I've been treating it as a threat, maybe it's actually our last best chance. So I wanted to uh, grant that I think that's a really important point. I'm not sure what to do with it, but we should keep it in mind. If Tocqueville were alive today, he would have the same concerns, but about UBI. Uh, Anthony, I'll let you respond to that if you want it all, and then we'll, I think we'll move on to some closing statements. I think we've dug in about as deep as we can here. You guys have all wrote, both written extensive works on this, so I'll, I'll link to all that stuff as well, and you know, we, can, we can follow up on some things. But go ahead, Anthony. Yeah, I don't really have, have much to say to someone uh, conceding a point. I just, uh, <laughs> I, I can say, say that I, I mean, I do concede the point that the vision of people not having to uh, fear, you know, oh, if what happens to me if I lose my job or um, people being able to pursue um, the business they've always wanted to try out. Oh, I always thought that I could open a cafe or whatever their dream is. is is compelling, uh, I fear that it will misallocate resources to people trying to do these projects who aren't actually skilled enough and uh, will, will, will often come up against uh, failure, whereas the, the market has a way of allocating resources to ideas that um, are likely to work and not waste uh, resources and that's that people need to go to investors and say I've got this really great idea for a cafe or whatever their vision is um, but I, I do admit that the universal basic income does create a vision of a world in which we are removed of the stress of having to survive and the idea is that um, with that stress off our back, maybe we can think more about how we can thrive as human beings, even if all we do is play Halo all day on the computer. Maybe uh, that's a really old computer game. I don't know anything about video <laughs> games. Uh, you know, um, maybe that will give people pause for thought. Maybe they'll go, well, look, I'm being paid to live here. Like, uh, why, why am I wasting all my time in this computer game? Um, they, they, they might have to actually confront their issues. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Uh, I think it's pretty risky. I would like to see the continuation, I guess this is my closing statement, of automate. I'd like to see the effects of the continuation of automation. I like Mike, I'd like to see the government out of the labor market so people can take low paying jobs that will start as low paying jobs, but you know, every bar won't have experienced staff wanted. You know, you can walk in there with no experience 
uh, and accept a low wage because we really, really need that. If, and that comes back to one of my fundamental points in the book, which is if you really want to help the people at the bottom, you can't do that by redistributing wealth because they'll just go out and spend that money and it'll go back to the rich people who own the capital. A, they need skills uh, that will fetch a high wage and B, they need capital themselves so they can have access to, uh, um, they can take, take profit in what advances society. And I just don't think that will be catered to by the universal basic income. So I guess that's why I'm not sure that that's the way, the way to go. I think it's going to ignore what the real causes of poverty and inequality are. All right, Anthony, do you want to kind of make that part of your closing statement or do you, do you, want to, do you just want to give your full closing kind of statement right, right now? I'll, I'll listen to what Mike, Michael has to say and then oh, decide wanna, in, a, in a weaselly fashion whether I, I want to have the whether I want to have the last word or not. All right. So, Michael, why don't we move on to you? Why don't you give your uh, final closing statement of why you are in favor of this resolution? The universal basic income is an alternative libertarians should support over the current welfare state, social security system, and minimum wage regulations. Floor is yours, Michael. Thank you. The perspective that I take is as a directional libertarian, where any increase in the personal responsibility and freedom of individuals and a reduction in the coercive intrusion of the state is an improvement, even if it doesn't go all the way to the level that libertarians might like in the ideal. So the question is, can we move in, the, in a direction that improves those things? My claim, and I've, we've talked about some problems with this that are hard to foresee, and one of the things that I find odd about my own position is that I, I'm, I'm arguing for this will be a once and for all change and then there will never again be any other additions or changes in the welfare system. That seems unlikely given the political incentives. But putting all those things aside, the argument for a universal basic income has three parts. First, it is a more efficient way of delivering benefits to the poor. If in the United States you look at the total amount that we spend on the poor and you divide by the number of poor people, there should be no poor people. So we should be able to solve that problem just by giving the money. The difficulty is that they may spend it in the wrong way. One of the problems with liberty is people are going to make choices you disagree with. It's none of your business. They're doing things that they think make their lives better. That's where we should uh, rest. Second, many people who find themselves imperiled, or in some cases impoverished, by the creative destruction of the market. That is, they graduated from high school, they started working in a manufacturing facility, and now those, that manufacturing takes place somewhere else, or it's done through automation or they've been replaced by software, all of them acted in good faith under the system. And we actually all benefit from the reduction in cost that's associated with that system. The thing is that economists often say, I've heard economists say this, everyone benefits from free trade. Everyone benefits from the creative destruction of the market. That's actually not true. There are winners and there are losers. The argument for markets is that the number and amount of winning far exceeds the amount of losses, but there are still distributional consequences. 
having some sense of not maintaining people's income, but ensuring them against completely dropping out of the system and not being able to participate is an argument that F.A. Hayek, Charles Murray, Milton Friedman, and a number of people have made. What we want to do is make it politically possible to have the benefits of this dynamic system, because otherwise, politically, people are going to vote against it. We'll be even worse off because we'll attempt to regulate the system in ways that are even worse. The third argument is the benefits cliff or the poverty trap, which is our current system perpetuates poverty. It perpetuates people who are economically marginal because they, they can't actually get jobs. They can't acquire the education that they would need to get jobs because uh, the, the, they're trapped living in high poverty areas. They can't move to go somewhere else because they would lose all their benefits. If, you, if we can reduce that sort of poverty trap, many people, if they're just allowed to act on their natural creativity and ambition, would be able to achieve great things, things that I can't imagine. I think those three things together are a compelling, argue, a compelling directional argument in favor of universal basic income. All right, thank you, Michael and Anthony. I will now let you rebut the statement and speak against the resolution. Okay, well, Michael says, as a directional libertarian, um, he is in favor of the UBI for the reasons he stated. I will say then, and uh, I'm, it's incumbent on me to state that uh, I'm not committing the perfectionist fallacy here and saying the UBI is not perfect, therefore we shouldn't move. I'm saying as a libertarian, I think it's a step in the wrong direction for um, for reasons I've outlined. It won't, uh, it, will, it will still, there will still be a lot of inequality which will lead to statists continuing to advocate for more government. Um, it's at the opportunity cost of arguing for uh, libertarian policies that will help the poor, um, pure, that, uh, such as um, those I outline in my book. Um, at least the present system is discriminatory. Now, Michael says that the thing with liberty is that people will make bad decisions. That's okay, so long as they make bad decisions with their own resources. What you do with your money is your business. What you do with money that's redistributed to you is the business of the people that it was redistributed from. So I don't think that's a fair argument. Um, I do think that the, I agree with Michael when he says that uh, people say, well, free trade benefits everyone and so forth. All these things, we say they benefit people over the long term, over time. Um, not, not necessarily everyone at once. But um, to say that the utilitarian argument, what that's, that's one argument is that it will increase prosperity. That the good outweighs the bad. The other one is, of course, um, keep your mittens out of my private business and don't stop me from trading. I, I want to buy apples from Sudan. You've got no right to stop me from trading with them. So there's also the prin principled argument. And from that, perspective, the UBI amounts to more coercion rather than less. Maybe I should have given, uh, Mike said that earlier, so Michael could argue the reverse. It's a little bit unfair to, uh, and when he says that people will be able to spend the money, you know, he's going to awaken the creativity of people who can't currently do that. Uh, 
Yes, that's only one side of the equation. It's also at the opportunity cost of all of the aspirations of those who earned the money and are being taxed the money to pay for it. So I think the UBI will grow arms and legs. And finally, my ultimate objection is that it brings everyone into the system. The state becomes a overarching umbrella to which we're all a stakeholder in. We all stand to gain from the state being a thing. And as public servants and people on welfare don't tend to be libertarian, I think making more people paid by the state is not going to lead to there being more libertarians who want less government. And um, second of all, it also makes them our breadwinner and puts us in the very precarious position of needing the government to put food on our family, as uh, George Bush put it. So that, those are, those are my uh, final statements. I want to thank uh, Michael for giving me uh, pause for thought several times this evening, a riveting debate, uh, very intellectually stimulating, and um, I hope that I was fair to him and didn't leave him with some objections that he didn't get the chance to answer to. Well, since you teed it up, I'll, if there are anything you want to respond in there to one more time, Michael, I'll, I'll give you a shot. Uh, no, uh, I thought that was, it's really very interesting. And I too learned a, a great deal from participating in this. And I should say from reading Anthony's book, which I think should be widely read and discussed. Well, excellent. No, that's thank why I, you. Yep, and that, that's why I want to do this debate today. I mean, I know Anthony's um, been doing the podcast rounds, so to speak. So I wanted to uh, kind of present the subject in sort of a different manner with a different kind of view. So I'm really grateful to both of you for coming on. I know it was difficult to arrange with all the various time zones that were all in here. So I really appreciate uh, all of the help you guys were able to give me in, in trying to set this thing up. So really appreciate it. And uh, I will link again in today's show notes to both of your work on the subject, all of your writing on the subject, uh, Michael's various articles and um, Anthony's book. And then, you know, any, anything that we've mentioned in today, I'll try to get with you afterwards and then try to get some of those links as well. So uh, like I said, the purpose of this is, is as you guys both experience is to sort of just kind of get the, get the thought process going and get people thinking about things in different ways. And it sounds like not only will the listeners hopefully get that, but you know, it sounds like both of you got a little bit of that uh, today's show as well. So I'm always glad to hear that. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks Thank you again. Great work. Thank you. Thank, thanks to both of you.